Hello, and welcome to Bird of the Week. It's a podcast about birds, released on a non-weekly basis. Episode 19, The Great Feather Heist, Part 2. Welcome back to our story about the Natural History Museum heist of the century. Last week, we set the stage. We looked at the history of salmon fly tying, the feather trade, introduced our future feath, and took a quick look at the unsuspecting, soon-to-be-thieved museum in Tring. If you haven't already listened to part one, I strongly recommend it because we won't be doing much of a recap, so check it out, and I'll sit here quietly and wait until you get back. Oh, oh, wait, with the miracle of editing, I don't have to literally wait. Um, okay, gonna cut this, and then we'll just, uh, start the episode. Today, we pick our story back up with Edwin Rist in London in 2007. I now hand it over to, well, actually, Nathan from the future. Take it away. Thank you, uh, Nathan from the past, and David, welcome back, and thank you for joining me again. How are you today? Hi there. Good evening, Dr. NG Finger from the present. I'm right, thanks. Thanks for having me back. Yes, I think we've been the victim of our own hubris, because last time we indicated very strongly that we were just going to record the second part straight away, but it's like two weeks later, and here we, here it's we are. It's literally a different day. It's We're very method. You have a method podcast that you run. <laughs> it's a different moon in the sky. <laughs> so, yeah, so I think it might be beneficial for us and the listener if we did a quick recap before we... Um, dive in because I'm not sure I remember what happened last time. Do you? <laughs> well, I mean, given it was two weeks ago, who remembers that far back? Would you like to give a summary of what happened in episode one? Sure, I'll give it a go. Uh, if you're binge watching this, please forgive me if I've missed anything. Um, all right, so first uh, we started out looking at various birds, uh, all with beautiful and interesting plumage. I think they're about, what, six, six of them or so? Maybe more? Something, I think there might have been five, actually. Well, how about that? Um, <laughs> so there was there was Six, nearly nearly half a dozen birds that we looked at, which were great. And then we talked about the feather trade and its uh, use to provide feathers for hats and then provide feathers for fly fishing lures. That's right. And then we talked about some one of the Baron Rothschild's menagerie of, of various animals and bird specimen collection at his uh, house. Uh, which was then turned into a museum um, north of London. That's right. And we talked, we met a young Edwin Rist, an American man who got into fly fishing at a young age. A Specifically bit of a lure tying. Tying the lures. That's right, yes. because as we remember, they don't actually fish. No, they that would be terribly gauche <laughs> to, to do the fishing. It's, it's a matter of the artistry, which, and we did look at some lures and they were very pretty. Yes. And very impressive. And Edwin Risto, man of many talents, apart from flying, uh, tying lures, he also played the flute and he got accepted into the Royal Academy of Music in London. So, so it seems we, we have, I mean, obviously, given the, the description, uh, you're, you're foreshadowing the first episode, there, there will be a heist of some sort. So it seems we have the heist location and the valuables and the interest, if not the motive, and we have the heister, but not really the how, when, or what happens next. That's right. Yes, to anyone that's just listening to this episode, this is the second part, and the first part was just pure context. 
Yeah, I would say go back and listen to that so you have more context for this one. But really, it was mostly a lot of background, wasn't it? It was a lot of... Interesting background, though. I like to think it was interesting. I like background. And I think it's... I would say if you can't be bothered, maybe you can just dive in and listen to this part of the story. But I think the background... You, you'll probably get to points to be like, what? <laughs> what? Why is this yeah. happening? Um, I, I mean, think the context would help a little bit. Well, every heist is better in its context, isn't it? There will be ridiculous situations that happen that won't seem quite so ridiculous unless you follow the, the long path of events leading up to it. Indeed. It's just um, that our heist that took place in 2009's context begins with Mary Antoinette in 1775. <laughs> it's a very long path of context, but all vital, I'm sure. All vital information. It's like, thank you, Mary Antoinette. Yes, the French Revolution is relevant to this story. <laughs> a white egret feather, you say. <laughs> so, with that context in mind, we can probably pick our story back up in London in 2007, where Edwin has just arrived to study the flute at the Royal Academy of Music. So his dream is to finish his studies and then land a gig playing with the Berlin Philharmonic. You know, what budding flautist wouldn't want to do that? I would love that if I played a flute. Um, and for a time, Edwin kind of, he steps back from fly tying. His music and his studies come to dominate his life. But he, he kind of keeps a little toe in the fly tying world. I think he attends a couple of shows in the UK and he does kind of exhibition public tying for some people at some point. Oh, really? So he was world-renowned then? Yeah. So he... The fly tying, it's 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 not a... It's not a big... It's one of those communities where everyone kind of knows everyone. Right. If that makes sense. Or at least the big players the in the community do. Like, it's very... It is very niche. Yeah, yeah. And I'd imagine, given the group of people generally engaging with it, I imagine it's not through everyone sharing the pictures of their most recent fly on Instagram. Yeah, and this predates that, Just it just predates that as well. Ah, okay, um, right. In, so, in 2007. Mm. So not a lot of social media options and really sort of word of mouth through the small community that he was pretty good at this stuff. Yeah, I think they, they had, you know, those online forums? Ah, uh, yes. Mm. Yes, an, an AOL or a GeoCity. Yeah. Yeah, I think I'm trying to remember what it was called. I think it was um, I think it was called classicflytying.com. I think was the online forum that he used to frequent. Oh, you didn't have a MySpace page with some automatic playing flute music. I don't think so, no. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, so he was he was known enough and he, I think he went to shows and I think some people who were there donated some materials so he could tie like a one-off thing as like an exhibition sort of uh, thing for just people that were attending these, you know, they're kind of like trade shows. Yeah, he's touring, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So he did one or two of those. You know, and in the back of the of his, of his head, he's, he's just remembering that recommendation to go and just check out that museum. And I think as we mentioned in the other episode, Tring, it's just, it's a little town. It's about an hour's north of London by rail. And so it takes him a little while to get round to it, but in uh, it's February 2008, and you know one day he logs on, he logs onto the website and he's clicking through and he sees that the collection, the, like the whole collection, is open to researchers or artists. All they have to do is make a request. And so he figures that the museum might not be too keen to let someone in who wants to see birds because they're a fly tire. Okay, that's a, a very, uh, I, I think that's a, a slightly nefarious position to go in with it's like hmm 
I don't think they'd like me in there because I like looking at them for the wrong reasons. Like that, that sounds a little suspicious, a little malice of forethought, but that's all right. Please continue. Well, okay. So he hits on to a different idea. And so he, he writes an email to the museum and he says, Hey there, I have a friend who is a research student at Oxford. He's studying birds. And he's asked me if I could pop in to take some photos of the birds to help out for his study. And the museum writes back and they say, no worries. We'll just need to confirm with your friend that this is for research purposes. <laughs> Good. Doing their due diligence. Yep. Yes. So Edwin writes back. He says, no problemo. And he gives them an email address that he sets up himself. And so when the museum writes to confirm, he writes back and says, yes, my friend totally needs to take some photos for me. And they didn't call this or either of them. No. To check. Nope. Great. Yep. So that's so that's so that's step one. <laughs> that's step one. Create a false identity. <laughs> well, uh, yeah. So he's created a false identity. How else do you view feathers? <laughs> with a false identity. And an a- with an alias, obviously. In a trench coat. <laughs> um, so the museum museum is satisfied. They give Edwin a time and a date to come and look at the birds. And I honestly think at this stage he was just curious about seeing the birds. I don't think he had any intent of stealing them or of planning a heist. I think he was just just a hobbyist interested in seeing, you know, the real thing up close. Self-conscious of his fly-tying association with... A little bit. ...with the, the history of, of what these feathers up might mean. Hmm. That's... Okay. All right. Yeah. I can accept that. Yeah, sure. So, but anyway, so, but he gets there and then his mind is basically blown. Oh, whose wouldn't? Right, yeah. He's taken out back off the floor, he, you know, in the, the corridors where they have just like cabinets, corridors of cabinets just filled with all of these incredibly rare birds that he has spent hundreds of thousands if you know, of dollars just trying to obtain a couple of loose feathers over the years. And so he's, 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 he's pretty overwhelmed, but, you know, he plays it cool. He takes a couple of photos of, I think he takes some photos of the Contigas and the Quetzals and the Birds of Paradise, and then he leaves. But as he's riding back to London on the train, the wheels in his head start turning. And it's at this point that his motivations, I suppose, start to shift from, I would like to tie beautiful lures to something that's more like, there is a heck of a lot of money that's sitting out there. The heist. Yes. Because, you know, Mm. Edwin knows exactly how much these feathers are worth, and especially feathers of that quality as well. They're not tatty old ones. They're really well-kept pristine feathers they are worth a lot of money to the right people and so over the next couple of months he starts to think more and more about this about how he might go about stealing them and from his perspective the museum has so many they probably wouldn't even miss them and what are they going to do with them anyway they're just sitting in drawers you know they could be beautiful lures like come on man is Tring a, a like a private museum and it doesn't have them out on display for the public to just come No, on no, so Tring it's it. it's um okay. or it's it's part of the British National Museum. Um it's just kind of located just a different location. Right. Yeah, I guess there's there's usually vast archives at museums where all these beautiful things you don't see until they rotate them onto mm. the main displays. Mm. Yeah, okay. so I think um these birds that he's looking at, they're they're more they're basically just, they're not displayed like a taxidermied bird would be, you know, like on a perch doing something that a lifelike bird would be doing. Yeah. They're, they're literally just the bird. They've got their wings and their legs tied up and they're just almost like a little roll or something. I don't know. Like a small baguette? Yeah, like a small baguette. Just in a drawer. Yeah, just in a drawer. A small bird baguette in a drawer. 
Yeah, they're just there for sort of like whenever researchers need to look at something. But anyway, okay. so Edwin's kind of like, there's a lot of money there. And the thing in life that Edwin is coveting the most at this stage is a golden flute. A, a golden flute? A golden flute. Does it have magical powers or is gold particularly good for flutes? Well, look, we'll come to that. Um, <laughs> oh, okay. <laughs> Not a straight answer to that one. Excellent. Please, go well, on. Well, so I'm sure you can imagine a golden flute doesn't come cheap. Oh, which... What kind of golden musical instrument does? <laughs> they go for about $20,000. That's somehow less than I expected. Oh, well, I'm sorry. <laughs> I think I expected a, a golden flute, assuming that there are no magical properties associated with it, that it would be some sort of million-dollar piece. But I guess if it's not, like, encrusted with jewels or anything ridiculous, then it's probably just just the price of that amount of metal. I suppose. But anyway, so... Yeah, but they're about $20,000, and he figures, yeah, if I could get a couple of birds, I could get my golden flute. And sure. the thing that I do love about this is just in the same way that a salmon can't tell the difference between an expensive lure and a piece of grit floating on the water, there is no audible difference that can be discerned between a normal <laughs> flute and one made out of a precious metal. So, Okay, I was... <laughs> that was going to be my question, like... Why the golden flute? I mean, don't get me wrong. I appreciate shiny things, as, as all the best magpies do. I have a piece of brass that I've saved that's just behind me that has just no practical purpose, but it's shiny and golden. Did you pay $20,000 for it, David? Well, I mean, I, it came with the house, so in a way I paid significantly more than that. Was it the selling point, though, where you're like, oof, if we buy this house, I'll get that brass? It comes with a, a washing machine. And a piece of brass from the light fitting. <laughs> but, but, so, but apart from this particularly lovely piece of brass, which has immense value and um, practical purpose, the golden flute was just a flute. Indeed it was. They've, they've done those um, blind studies with experts where they play one flute, play the other, and no which one Which one is tell. gold? Which one's the gold one? Or which one's the platinum one? Or which one's the silver one? I bet you could figure out based on the temperature in your hand if there's a temperature change <laughs> based on the thermal properties of the metal. But Maybe a supercomputer could. <laughs> yes, with those supercomputers with their hands <laughs> and those lips that they blow through. Oh, no, I mean that like if you played it to oh, I see, a computer yes. that had been trained to listen to the um, resonance things. For the yeah. yeah. Maybe, cool. maybe they could, but a human ear, nope, cannot tell the difference. So right. it's just a nice-to-have accessory. Yeah, I mean, it's a nice... A golden flute, nice-to-have. Not, not? not a need-to-have, just a nice-to-have. Just a nice-to-have. Anyway, so so Edwin starts to plan his heist, and he creates a Word document on his computer, which he calls Plan for Museum Invasion. <laughs> is, hold, hold on, hold on. Yes. Is, is that true? Yes, it's true. <laughs> Oh, okay. That's great. I love it. It's like a comic book. I should also add that um, Plan for Museum Invasion was also written in all caps as well, if that adds anything. Do you know if it was written with a caps lock or did he hold shift for the I entire don't... thing? I like to think he held shift. Yeah. Okay, so he's committed. <laughs> he's, he's committed. He's invested in this plan. He's very invested. So great. his next step, he starts to gather supplies. What? Of course. What What do you need to commit a Turing heist? 
So um, the first thing he, he did whilst, whilst he was at a dentist appointment, he pocketed a pack of latex gloves because he thought, hey, probably need those to conceal my fingerprints. Very expensive, a pack of latex gloves. Very expensive. The next thing he does <laughs> okay. is he buys, he buys a, a diamond blade glass cutter off eBay. Okay. He didn't steal that one. No, nope, he just bought, no, he bought that one legally. Of course. Yep. Do they just sell them? Can I buy one? I, I don't know, I guess. We should get one. Oh, you think we need one? Oh, sure. <laughs> anyway, he studies maps of the museum. He works out the best place of entry. And he, um, he studies maps of the town. He plans his entrance and exit from the village. You know, he found a, a dimly lit uh, footpath that ran right next to the ornithology building. You know, all... <laughs> okay. He's doing great. Did he get a getaway driver too? Or does he have like a bicycle or something? Oh, no, no. He just caught the train. <laughs> <laughs> Excellent. Hoping it's not late. Anyway, so he figures that the only thing he'd have to do is climb a small wall, snip the barbed wire at the top, then reach across to cut the window open, and then, Bob's your uncle, you're in the museum. Okay, so this is a, a nighttime heist plan. It was a nighttime heist plan, yes. All right, the best heists. All right, Ooh, it's got to be done under the cover of dark, come on. So the date is now June 23, 2008, and Edwin, he felt like he was ready to pull off the heist. So he puts together his thief tools, he bought a suitcase... And he jumped on the evening train to Tring. Now, the, the robbery didn't quite go to plan. I'm shocked. Well, he like he picked his date carefully. He picked it when it was a new moon, so it would be nice and dark. <laughs> I was going to say, so people were acting a bit weird. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, a new moon, not a not a full moon. Oh, sorry, you said pseudoscience. I just assumed. Oh, sorry. Anyway, so he's, he's he catches the train up. He's dragging his suitcase down a country road to the back alley behind the museum. He climbs the wall. He cuts the barbed wire. Everything's going fine. He gets to the top. And the window is... It's just a couple of feet off from the wall, so it's within reach. You just have to lean over and try to cut a hole in the glass. And so he, he takes out his glass cutter, and he makes... He's going to make a hole in the window. But I don't... I, I doubt you've ever tried to cut glass, but it isn't particularly easy and it's even more difficult when you're precariously perched atop a wall and stretching over a gap to do it. You know what? I've never tried to cut glass, particularly not in those circumstances. No, neither have I. But uh, so I, I, I just trust that it would be difficult. <laughs> oh, it sounds, it sounds utterly movie worthy. He's <laughs> like sweating. There's like guard dogs coming around the side just in time. Oof. Gets it open. At any rate, he drops the glass cutter and oh. he's left. Yeah, he drops it, and he's left swaying on top of the wall with no way in. But not to be deterred, he climbs back down onto the path. He picks up a rock, climbs back up, and just bashes the window in. Plan B. Plan B. Yeah. And yeah, it works, I guess. There it would. Yeah. Jeez. So yeah, he, he cleared a path in the window. He pushes his suitcase through, and now he is inside the building. Oh, he brings the suitcase with him. Oh, yeah, he pushes it through into the building as well. Oh, he doesn't just take the tools he needs. He, has, he wants to have everything there. Well, he needs the suitcase to put the birds in. Ah, uh, of course. Yeah, we'll come to that. For to, to have it on the train back. <laughs> anyway, so he, he's, he's inside, but unbeknownst to Edwin, he has tripped the security, and there is a light now flashing in the guard's office. But lucky for Edwin, the on-duty guard has his attention drawn by a different television screen because by sheer luck there was a soccer game going on at the same time. And the guard was so engrossed in the game that he didn't notice the blinking alarm. Oh, that's such a good plot. <laughs> that's such a good plot point. So of course, they scheduled their heist for just the right time. Like, they've just scored a goal 
And it's like, now, go, 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 go. (laughs) Again, more happy coincidence than anything else. Anyway, so Edwin was free to scurry down the corridor. And just as he planned, he headed for the cabinets that he'd been to before. None of them were locked. That surprises me. I'm surprised that the that they weren't locked. I, I think I would have expected. I guess, I guess they, they probably don't get many heists, and if you lock all the doors in between, you probably wouldn't expect people to smash through the windows. Probably not. Anyway, at any rate, the drawers weren't locked, so you know, started pulling out trays, and he started stuffing birds into his bag. He started with forty-seven fruit crows. Then he forty-seven. Moved... Forty-seven. <laughs> okay, I think I was really expecting this to be some sort of like he he steals like one of each specimen. It's it's just a little thing. But no, no, no. That that must be like almost all of their fruit crows, surely. Well, he didn't take the females or the juveniles. He only took the pretty males, the valuable ones. Well, the ones that were valuable to him, at any rate. To him, fair. yes. Yes. So then he moved on to the resplendent quetzals. How many of them? Thirty-nine. Quetzals. Of course. <laughs> Next, he went to the Contigas. Yeah. Would you like to guess how many Contigas he took? Oh, 45. 98. Oh, my God. <laughs> where's this? How big was his bag? It, I think it was luggage that you would check onto a plane. Yeah, look, I've never tried to, to pack or check any number of bird specimens so i don't really have a baseline as to what an appropriate number is to squeeze in there they're not large birds you know they're they're getting close to 200 birds they're quite soft i think they'd pack they pack well i think they pack well (laughs) (laughs) yeah you do them top to tail so they sort of tessellate nicely so next so after so he's still not done though because then he goes to the birds of paradise Mm -hmm. he takes 37 king birds 24 magnificent rifle birds, 12 superb birds, 4 blue birds, and 17 flame bow birds. Do you think, do, do we ever find out if there was reason behind these numbers, or was it just handfuls or armfuls of whatever was there? I, I think he was just grabbing whatever he could get his hands on. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. Uh, and some of those specimens had been collected by none other than Alfred Russell Wallace. Who's this? You, you're not familiar with Alfred Russell Wallace? I'm, I'm not. I don't think so. Oh, he... You may have heard that Darwin came up with the theory of evolution, but at the same time... I've heard of him. Yes, at the same time, you might have heard that someone independently came up with it at a, basically the same theory at the same time. Oh, so this is after Lamarckism. Like, also the same idea of natural selection. Yeah, yeah. Wow. And, and that was... Alfred Russell Wallace doesn't get as much um, glory as Darwin, but yeah, he came up with his own theory of evolution, which almost beat for beat is the same as Darwin's, basically at the same time that Darwin was coming up with it. How come Darwin won out in terms of the, the history and fame? I think it has to do with the fact that Darwin was... Uh, quite wealthy, quite well-to-do, whereas Alfred Russell Wallace was a bit more, was was not. So mm. he did a lot of, he like, he tramped around um, the Malay archipelago, um, you know, collecting specimens and doing it, doing it pretty rough because, I don't want to say, like, as his profession, but whereas, like, because Darwin traveled around and did a lot oh. himself, but he, yeah. he was definitely 
of the landed gentry sort it's, of thing. It's like the difference between cricketers, you have the professionals and the amateurs, and the amateurs have a bunch of money and just doing it for the love of it. Yes, yes. The profession is actually a very serious about trying to do this as a living and mm. are not respected enough because they're considered a lower class. Yeah, almost, yeah, that, that's probably a good way to, to think of it. And they communicated with each other, and I think they had a lot of respect for each other, but uh, I guess I think Darwin was just a bit better at uh, publicising his ideas. Good PR team. Yeah, exactly. Kind of like in the same way that, you know, calculus was come up, came, Newton and, um, uh, what was the other chap's name? <laughs> the one no one remembers came up with calculus at the same time. <laughs> Leibniz. Leibniz, yeah, Leibniz, that's it, yeah. <laughs> Certainly I'm going to remember Alfred Russell Wallace from now. He's a cool, he has a bird of paradise named after him. Does he? What's it called? It's a Wallace's standard wing. <laughs> oh, that's so kind of sad. I was hoping it would be like Wallace's splendiferous plumaged finch snatcher or something. They're freaky birds. Not standard at all. Well, because the standard refers to kind of like a military standard. Oh, I see. Not not standard as in basic. <laughs> I see. Oh, I've, I'm looking up pictures of it. Ah, indeed. You can see that they've kind of got like funny little tassels that come off their wings. It does. It it turns its it turns its wings into like the the horizontal post of a standard with the banner of, of its wings flowing down. Yeah, very much so. So they're they're f- they're a freaky bird. They're very strange looking. Anyway, we've gotten off track. Uh, where were we? So in total. Edwin gets 299 birds into his suitcase, which that's, is pretty impressive. That's, it's both impressive and, impressive and just... It just seems like such a vast number of birds to decide to take. Like, that's not, oh, well, I'm just going to steal a couple of crown jewels. That's like, I'm going to clean out their collection. He did well. He did well. And so wow. he, he gets his 299 birds, and then he goes back out the way he came in, and all before the guard gets up from his soccer match to do a round of the building. Which, wow. I don't know how long... I like. I do. I am not a fan of the soccer. I have no idea how long a game goes for, but most people estimate that it took Edwin about three hours to pick up everything that he did. Isn't is it a soccer game? Like, it's like an hour and a half. That's what I thought. Like, I mean, even there, I guess there could be lots of other things going on that extend it, but that just seems... Maybe there was like pre-match and, and post-match commentary that the guard was particularly interested in i don't know well for one reason or another he the guard does not do a round or at least doesn't do a round that comes across edwin and so he makes his way back to the train station and he boards the 354 back to london without raising so much as a of an eyebrow was it a heavy suitcase do we know ah must have been it's full of birds i mean at least he's one diamond edged glass cutter lighter (laughs) jeez Ah. so what a heist well indeed did it. so i think the next question the, the next question is um when did the tring figure out they'd been uh they'd been robbed that's a good point did they did they have a follow-up from this ostensible ostensible research student who wanted to come have another look at what other birds they had on offer no, no, Edward did not get in touch with the museum again. No, he didn't return to the scene. He did not return to the scene of the crime. That's the first. That's a, such a rookie mistake. Never returned to the scene of the crime. So it's so the it's the very next day. A, a different guard is now walking the rounds of walking the perimeter of the building, mm. and he discovers a broken window. Mm. Yes, and so you know he raises the alert. 
But what happens next might surprise you. I, frankly, almost anything <laughs> that happens next would surprise me. Okay. I'm constantly surprised. <laughs> Constant state of surprise. So what happens is, you know, the ornithology department is alerted and initially they're very concerned because they actually hold in this museum a lot of very rare and expensive items. So in this museum, they have a collection of Darwin's original finches that Darwin himself had collected. To, to the museum staff, that's probably the most obvious thing that you would steal. And so when they arrive and they hear that there's been a theft, that's the first thing they check and they check and Darwin's finches are still there. The next thing they check are the skins of the, they have some extinct birds um, in the collection. So they've got passenger pigeons and the great, the great orc. Um, which was a large penguin-like flightless bird from the North Atlantic. I remember I used to have a picture book as a small child with the great orc in it and the moa and various other extinct large birds. It was always very interesting looking at the, the drawings. Well, they had specimens of that. They also had some very rare dodo remains as well. Oh. Fun fact, there are almost no specimens of actual dodos. They're very, very rare thought you were going to say there are almost no dodos around anymore. Well, almost none. Almost none indeed. So they checked those and they are all still there. And the Tring also held a copy of a very rare book by John James Audubon called the called Birds of America, which you may have heard of. There's actually there's actually a movie about some people that tried to steal this book because it is the from the same place. No, they tried to steal a copy from an American museum. Ah, okay. I wonder if they used a rock as well. <laughs> I think the, mo the movie only came out a few years ago. I think it's called... American Animals, 2018 heist film. Yep, that's it. That that's. I'm not sure if that's based on a true... I think that is based on a true story as well. But yeah, some kids tried to steal um, this book because it holds the uh, Guinness World Record for being the most expensive book in the world, which the last time a copy was sold, it sold for $11 million. <sighs> okay. So... 299 bird specimens that's what he's after for his twenty thousand dollar flute not the the millions of dollars in the book that just i guess it would be much harder to hawk it be very it very hard to move move the book anyway so i guess what the museum stuff did is they looked for all the things that they would have stolen mm, and yeah. so they even checked you know for laptops and other electronics but everything that they deemed to be a value was still there and so for a while, this broken window in the museum was a bit of a mystery. They called the police, but they didn't have anything to report as stolen. Did the cameras not record? That's a good question. Um, they had cameras. They didn't check them. Oh. You, you would maybe think that they would do a stock take of their inventory, but they didn't. You would think there would be... I mean, I don't know how big Tring is. How big is, is Tring as a museum? Do they have thousands and thousands of... Well, yeah, well, this is the reason why they didn't do a stock take. It's because they have 700,000 birds in the collection. And, you know, I think they've got like a staff of five or six. And so it was just... resourced. It was just completely unfeasible to do a complete audit of everything. So they just checked the obvious things and everything was still there. I mean, I have, I have many questions as to how that all happens, but sure. Yeah. They didn't know for a while. Yeah. So it would be, it would take a month for them to figure out that they'd been stolen. It was July 28th, in fact, when a different researcher turned up wanting to look at some birds and they opened a drawer and found nothing in it. 
Oh my god. Yeah. That I mean, look, that would be eminently disappointing for everyone. Yeah. In that situation. Yeah. The researcher who presumably was <laughs> another fly fisher wanting to tie some lures and someone had got to the first. <laughs> presumably that's who the second researcher was. Oh, he just drops his glass cutter on the ground. So what's the point? <laughs> <laughs> So uh, once they kind of, I think uh, it was the contigas that they noticed were missing first. And once they kind of cottoned on to that, they were compelled to do a full inventory then. And that's when they figured out that their inventory showed that 299 birds from 16 different species were missing. But And this is where we kind of um, come to the weird thing about the uh, the CCT footage, which does record things. And the footage is held for 28 days before being recorded over. And they discovered oh. that the theft had happened 34 days after it had oh, occurred. Oh, no. Oh, no. That's so disappointing. So the footage was gone. But why they didn't check it the first time? Why wouldn't she just it's, check it the first time? It's baffling, isn't it? Is it? We can't figure out what is stolen. Let's not look. <laughs> <laughs> so the, the police are kind of already starting behind you know, behind the eight ball here. They yeah. They had no motive. They had no method. They had no knowledge of if it was a person or a gang they had they, they didn't know if it was a local if someone was out of town so you they know, didn't even have real names they didn't have no, fingerprints no they had they just had a glass cutter they on the ground on the lawns yes uh, funnily enough they also didn't find the glass cutter until <laughs> uh, they didn't find it initially when they first found the broken window it was only when they called the police in for the second time that the detective found the glass cutter oh okay that's Oh, that's awkward, isn't it? It is a little bit awkward, yeah. So Scott Freeze, he got off? Yeah, he, he got away. What a story. Well, maybe maybe we should go and check in on Edwin and see what he's been up to in the, the past month. Oh, yeah. How's his, how's his golden flute? We now interrupt this show with a quick word from our sponsors. Did you know Bird of the Week is a listener-supported podcast? Wait, you mean people actually pay for this nonsense? Get out of town! It's true. This podcast is only possible because people who listen and like what they hear have been generous enough to chip in a buck or two. Thank you so much to everyone who signed on. I can't tell you how much your support means to me. And everyone who does give their support also gets access to the bonus Bird of the Week sponsors only podcast, What's Up With That Bird's Name. So exclusive. Each episode breaks down a bird's name to discover just how these amazing avens got their name. I'm heading off now to record the next episode. This week we're looking at the Bohemian Waxwing. Is this bird a gypsy made out of candlesticks? Maybe. Who can say? I can say. And you can find out for the low, low price of just $2 a month. My god! It's basically an investment at that price. And if you're crazy enough to chip in a bit more and would like the extra kudos, then you too can be like my newest bestest best friends in the whole wide world, Jill Chalker, Jody Little, and Innes of Senti Illustrations, and get your own personal thank you in the show. Thanks, guys. It warms my heart. It really does. So if you want to get some extra avian action in your life, pop over to Patreon. That's Patreon forward slash Bird of the Week, or one word, link in the description. And now, on with the show. Oh yeah, how's his how's his golden flute? Well, because I mean, well, we mentioned how you know it would be very hard to move a eleven million dollar book. That's the most expensive book in the world. 
Mm, but yes. Edwin was basically faced with the same conundrums, though. Now that he had these birds, selling them to raise the money for the golden flute uh, was going to be a bit trickier. <laughs> so it's like a quest. <laughs> Raising money for the golden flute. He's on a quest. He's on a quest, He's for, a golden a quest for the golden flute. <laughs> um, you must find these magical birds. Yes. 300 birds for a golden flute. A woman in the lake told him. But, you know, he realised that he couldn't drop them all onto the market at once. That would attract too much attention. And he thought the easiest way to sell them would be to pluck each bird, separate out the feathers and sell them individually. Sorry, hold on. Weren't these, weren't these very delicate specimens? Like, wouldn't that destroy the... You'd have to be so careful pulling out feathers like that, wouldn't you? Well, that again, that was part of the problem as well, that that was going to be incredibly time-consuming. Yeah. And he kind of, he figured that if he did it that way, it would literally become his full-time job. And there's no payout until the very end, or until he hawks them. Oh, I guess he could kind of do it bit by bit. And in fact, that's kind of what he ended up doing. He So he kind of settled on a bit of a a hybrid way of selling it. So he reached out on the sly to a couple of people that he knew from the community kind of selling off one or two birds at a time whilst also kind of plucking and selling some individual feathers off in little packs. But, no, you know, no matter what, he it was still, like, incredibly time-consuming, though. Mm. And slowly through the context that he had in the fly world, he went about his work and he began to offload the merchandise. Usually he would tell a fabricated story about where the birds came from. He'd say, oh, oh, they were from a deceased estate. Or, oh, he, he met a, a rich client and was helping them to sell their collection. Or, oh, he had a friend in Papua New Guinea who had sent him birds as a part of a trade sort of thing. Oh, I see. Yes. That last one particularly <laughs> totally fine for biosecurity laws. We all have friends in Papua New Guinea. And who can't send animal specimens around the world without issue that's it's a very easy thing to do and especially ones that look so old <laughs> wow okay I, I mean i imagine some people are very willing to accept some of these excuses given the rarity and, and just absolute fascination with some of the feathers well that's exactly what was working in edwin's favor as well so yeah. he he knew that the people really wanted these Feathers, And it was kind of a situation where if they suspected something was fishy, they were just inclined to, like, I just won't ask questions so that I don't get answers that I don't want. Yeah, that's that's not a great situation. No, so the community, it's one of those situations where outwardly, as we will see as well, like, outwardly the community wants to operate within the law, but Who in practice in practice, is willing to turn a blind eye as long as it isn't overtly drawn to their attention. I imagine it would probably be difficult for some people, particularly for private buyers, um, especially if they're hobbyists, to be able to like, realistically be able to ask those questions, know what sort of questions to ask and be able to verify any sort of answer they get. I, I imagine, apart from having to have a lot of just trust that, that people have acquired these legally, there would just be a bit of a barrier in terms of how you could realistically and reliably check that. I wouldn't really know how to begin to check whether or not someone is lying to me about that, whether or not it just sounds fishy. It'd be very hard to verify the providence, but as we will see uh, in the end, there are telltale signs, but we'll get to that in a minute. 
Interesting. Uh, yes. But anyway, so that's working for him. And so at the same time, though, there are police working the case. And funnily enough, one of the working theories they had that it could have been someone from the fly tying community because mm-hmm. they obviously noticed that only the males, male birds had been taken. Yeah. Which, which to them initially struck them as being curious because if it was a collector or anyone like that, they would want the females as well. Mm. Imagine that conversation in the police station. So I have this theory. <laughs> Fly ties. Well, it was the museum's theory, actually, because... Oh, um great theory, museum. Well, because they'd had fly ties approach them in the past, offering to buy birds that, you know, they had turned away. Oh, so some of the uh, hesitation and carefulness on Edwin Rist's part kind of makes sense then in terms of initially seeing the specimens. Yeah, I think the person that had recommended he go and visit the Tring had himself tried to buy the birds from the museum legally. You know, he oh. just approached them and offered to buy them and they turned him away. That would be very suspicious for them to then go missing. But even though they had this theory, they didn't. They never checked the online sites. And there was plenty of chatter on, you know, the fly-tying forums about how Edwin had come into birds. And if they yeah. checked eBay, they'd have found more evidence and sales records. But no one investigated this at the time. I guess they didn't know the, the scale of the feather trade. They didn't listen to part one of the podcast. <laughs> <laughs> the fools. That's where it's like, the context. It's all about the context. And the other thing that they could have checked, which they didn't, was that when Edwin had visited the museum, he had written his name in the visitor book, his own name, Edwin Rist. It was six months in the past, but his name was there. If they'd run a Google search of his name, it would have popped up straight away. Yeah, it's a, a bit of a misstep, mm. especially since they sort of narrowed down generally as to when because the... i think you would think i mean you would naturally think that maybe the person that had robbed the place maybe had visited it in the not it in too the distant last... past exactly yeah. you, you must have the person must have cased it in the past mm. you know six to 12 months you would think for you think any so of knowledge of the area to be current and especially those specific ones would presumably have been on a list as to these ones these specimens were shown to someone mm. I guess it is easy in hindsight for us to go, oh, you know, they missed all this evidence. The evidence wasn't obvious, but there was evidence there if they had looked in the right place, I suppose. Yeah, well, presumably that's why we're able to talk about it now, because someone else managed to do that hard work and find out and then connect mm. to all the dots and, and all the evidence, whereas us with this commentating said, obviously this would Obviously. Happen. Well, I obviously. wouldn't have done it we like sit that. in our, our armchair smoking our pipe. I would have had a duffel bag. <laughs> I'd have brought someone with me. Far less suspicious. Uh, anyway, it's now 2010, um, and Edwin, he's growing, I suppose, increasingly confident. Oh, he's getting brash and brazen. Mm, perhaps so. Um, and he's selling more fool skins um, to people in trade shows. Mm. And eventually this would be the thing that would bring him down. Hubris. Indeed. So May of 2010 comes, and there's a fly-tying show in the Netherlands. And it's a show that Edwin wasn't even at. So the, at this show, there were two people came into contact with each other. There was a, a Dutch engineer and a retired Irish detective who had worked <laughs> undercover during the Troubles. Who would these two people be played by in any film adaptation? Because oh. what a pair. <laughs> <laughs> it's an unlikely, it's an unlikely coupling. The best star. 
Yes. Both so both of them had become fly ties in their retirement. Oh, yeah. As as one does. As one does. And so the Irishman, he was a little new to the craft, and he was he was just walking the stalls, going from booth to booth, and he stopped at um, the Dutchman's fly tying booth, and the two of them they get talking, and this yeah. Dutchman. The, the firmest it's like friends. the setup of a joke, <laughs> yeah. and so eventually the Dutchman. Uh, he's, he's showing showing his feather collection, and he brings out this amazing blue contiga skin. And there was just something about it that struck this Irish detective as being a bit off. So he was still new to the game, but he'd been online and he'd looked for you know these birds, and all the ones that he'd seen for sale had previously been in hats, and the ones that had been sorry, in hats. Sorry, just just to be clear about the image I now have in my mind is all the birds he'd seen were wearing hats. And he was really surprised that these birds, they didn't have hats on. Something's not right. To be clear, <laughs> birds weren't wearing the hats. The birds were on the hats. The hats were wearing them. That Indeed, the hats were wearing them, not the other way around. But I suppose this is what I alluded to before, where there is when we're talking about identifying the providence of a bird, there is a difference. So a bird that's kind of displayed in a hat, it has its wings outsplayed and it looks a little tatty because it's being used. Whereas birds that are prepared for museums, they kind of, they have, they always have their wings tucked in, they have their legs tied, they have like cotton in their eyes and they're in very good condition. So Mm, to, to protect them, I assume. Yeah. Yeah. So if you're familiar with that, it sticks out like a sore thumb. And so he saw this and it just seemed odd to him. And a little bell in the back of his mind went off that he had heard that, oh, there had been a theft of birds from a museum about a year ago. Had a little birdie told him? Indeed. Nice. So he, he he's very casual and he just, he's kind of like, oh, you know, where, where did you get this bird? And the Dutchman goes, oh, some kid named Edwin Rist. Ooh, full name. And so the Irish detective, he, he goes home and he, he did what the London police failed to do. He whacked Edwin's name into Google and found plenty of evidence straight away. Nice. And so the next day he rings the police station at Hertfordshire. He gives them the tip off and that is what cracked the case. Wow. Good work, retired policeman. Yeah. Kind of like everything in the story. It's just strange happenstance. Yeah. It, as you say, Edwin Rist wasn't there. No. This is a different... It wasn't him trying to hawk these onto the police officers as old dog. <laughs> That's not right. This no. Is some innocent Dutch person. Yeah. They cracked the case. Yes, they've cracked the case. The police had their tiff off, but it would still be a few months before they were actually able to arrest him. Because, ironically, when they got the tip-off, it was during the uni semester break and Edwin was back in America. <laughs> oh, I see. He'd gone home. He was home. With his golden flute. Well, no, I don't, think he, I don't think he ever got the golden flute. Oh, that's a shame. No, it is. And then when he came back to the UK, he'd moved house. It took the police a while to track him down, but on the 11th of November 2010, they finally caught up with him and they found his apartment and they knocked on his door... And as soon as Edwin opened the door and saw the police, he basically admitted to everything on the spot. That's very enterprising of him. He even volunteered the information that the television in his apartment had been stolen from the university's communal area. (laughs) A surprisingly selectively honest person. Wow, that's... Why would he... I guess maybe you thought that they would just find out anyway. You may as well admit to everything. (laughs) 
He's like, yes, officer, I stole the birds and also this teepee as well. And and these latex gloves <laughs> from the dentist's office. <laughs> <laughs> so anyway, they search his house and they... Yeah, fair re- enough. They recover 174 of Is the bird skins. It? Yeah, so... How how long had this been since he so he so this is November 2010 and he did the heist I think did we say June or July of 2009 so nearly a year and a half 18 uh, nearly a year and a half not quite right so a year for about 120 birds worth yeah so of the 174 that they recovered 102 were still fully intact and had their identifying labels that has all the information of where they were collected but that left 125 unaccounted for that had already been sold. And we, so, and we, we might come back um, and touch on that bit in, at the end, but now it might be a good opportunity to come to the court proceedings, perhaps, which Ooh. is interesting in itself as well. It is. It does sound very interesting. I'd be fascinated to hear, to, to read what the judgment would have been going through the evidence, what the arguments presented were, the, the, the timeline of events. <laughs> the short particulars they hand out at the beginning of the of the proceedings. Well, because he's already admitted to guilt, hasn't he? Well, immediately, and to multiple guilts unrelated <laughs> to the current case, from the sounds of it. So the first thing that happens is it only takes about two weeks for them to get to court. So they get to the magistrate court on 26 November, and straight off the bat, the prosecution argues that this level of the legal system isn't sufficient to deal with the serious nature of the crime, and they want to kick it up to the Crown Court. The, the severity of the case warrants is that, is that common legal practice? Um, it can be, I think. I, I don't, as I say, I don't know the UK legal system particularly well, but certainly uh, if, if some sort of act was particularly egregious or maybe if there was potential sentence that was particularly severe it might warrant it or if the people involved are there's some sort of public interest reason that they might be done in a more a more superior court setting sorry to, to say uh, how common is it mm. i'm not quite sure how common it is in the uk but i'm it's it sounds like it's if, if it's anything like australia it certainly can happen if it's particularly severe nathan from the future here so i don't know if it's evident but david is a practicing lawyer However, like all good lawyers, David has asked that I issue an addendum here to the point he has just made. He has said it would depend on the severity of the case, on if it would be kicked up to the Crown Court. What he really meant to say is that it would depend on the complexity of the case. I um, I, uh, don't know if that is going to add to the nuance of your listening experience, but I had to add it. He said he'd sue me if I didn't. I can't afford to be sued! Back to the show. Well, at any rate, the the judge in the magistrate court agreed and it got kicked up to the Crown Court. Well, there you go, it happens. <laughs> so the judge kicks it up to the Crown Court and Edwin arrives for sentencing on the 14th of January. It's now 2011. And he's already put in a guilty plea. So this is, it's just a sentencing at this stage. Sure. And Edwin's lawyers, they make an appeal that a mental health assessment has to be made first so that any underlying issues can be taken into consideration before the sentencing occurs. Yep, I believe that's relatively standard. The judge agrees and adjourns the court for another month. And we now have to introduce a new player to our story, the psychologist. Okay, is this psychologist named in any way? 
or is it just that the character is going to be the IMDb page will be the psychologist? Played by the psychologist. No, the psychologist is Dr. Simon Baron Cohen. Uh, that surname <laughs> yes. might be familiar to you. It is. Any relation? Uh, uh, it, well, it turns out um, Simon Baron Cohen is the cousin of Sasha Baron Cohen. Oh, of course. Again, very easy to cast this for the movie. <laughs> <laughs> what a coincidence. I actually believe he is now knighted as well. I think he's Sir Simon Baron Cohen. For too. his services in this case? Uh, not this case specifically, but for his services to autism spectrum disorder. So we now have our star witness, Dr. Simon. And so Edwin was given a questionnaire to fill out and he did an interview with the good doctor. And the account that I've read is that Simon was rather taken with Edwin, or at least uh, he was impressed by his expansive knowledge about the craft of um, fly tying and the long rich history that's associated with it. And, you know, the fact that he was able to talk about it at great length and he came to believe that Edwin's motivation hadn't been for money, but that he had become obsessed by the art of fly tying and was so over-focused that he had developed, a, I suppose, a kind of tunnel vision and become unaware of the social consequences that would follow from such, an, such a theft, if you will. Had, it, had they considered the eventual prize of a golden flute being a motivating factor, or was that left aside? The prosecution certainly never forgot about that mm. because it is curious that he came to that conclusion, you know, never mind the fact that Edwin had clearly been selling the feathers online and seemed much more interested in making money than, you know, doing any fly tying himself. Yeah, it, it does. As, as you say, if he was, he'd been selling the feathers as packs, but I mm. suppose maybe there's an argument to be made that selling those as packs were to encourage others to engage in the craft. And maybe that was connected then to the obsession. Feels like a bit of a long bow, that, doesn't it? Oh, look, <laughs> neither of us are psychologists. Neither of us, I assume, have read the um, any of the assessment conducted by that particular psychologist. Um, no. Anyway, it was his professional opinion that Edwin had Asperger's and he recommended counselling over a prison sentence. And so they all come back to court in April and the prosecution is still, you know, gunning for a heavy sentence and they read reports from the museum talking about the catastrophic blow the theft had to the to world heritage and scientific research and yeah. they went into, you know, the still missing skins and the degraded ones and uh, that had been recovered in were of limited use because if as soon as you remove the identification tag from the bird, the bird doesn't really have any, or its value is limited because you need to know where and when it came from for it mm. to be of real value. And they even mentioned the stolen TV. Part of the character. Yes. Um, I assume. Yes. And so the judge, he was interested in, he was interested in everything. He was interested in the psychological analysis and he was also interested in a, a little something else that I, I know you lawyers love, which is precedent. <laughs> we do love precedent. That is true. Sometimes. Sometimes. Well, he... So the defense had drawn a particular precedent to the judge's attention. and It was a case... How analogous was it? Was it also a bird heist? Uh... I'll let you judge how analogous it was. The okay. case was um, Crown against Gibson. 
And so now we need to pause again to visit what happened in Crown against Gibson, because that is another wild case. Regale me. We have to jump all the way back to the year 2000. And here we find another 20-year-old and a couple of his mates, and they had crept into the Bristol Cemetery one fine evening. Oh, of course, for for owls' feathers? (laughs) Not quite, no. This intrepid group of um, uh, nocturnal necromancers uh, found their... Maybe they were after a book as well. Well, I didn't think the Necronomicon was in Bristol. (laughs) (laughs) Well... They they found their way into um, an old crypt from the 1800s, and sure. uh, they, 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 they broke into it, and they found some 34 coffins in this crypt. And okay. they say that they only wanted to, you know, have a look around, and but when they got inside, they noticed that one of the coffins was damaged, and um, not only did they manage to get it open, but they also decided to steal the skull and a, a couple of uh, the vertebrae, you know, just as a little memento, as as you do. Oh, I thought you were going to go down the route of, the, and there was a skeleton standing right there, or there was a person standing in some dirt with uh, bat wings. But no, just just regular interference with with a corpse. Okay, just desecration. Just 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 some basic desecration. So they did that, and then they locked the tomb back up using one of their own padlocks that they had brought. Uh, how thoughtful of them. Indeed. Did they leave the key in? <laughs> <laughs> no, I believe they took the key with them. Oh, so they could come back later. Yeah. Th- that's yeah. our mausoleum now. Yeah. That's yeah. our crypt. Yeah. And so they, they took their acquisitions home and they made the vertebrae into a necklace, like how oh. you do. Uh, sure. I wonder yeah. if they used a Dremel to drill holes in it to thread through or how they did that. I'm not sure, but they made a necklace out of the vertebrae and then they went back a second time. They opened a second coffin, uh, but this time they were a bit bummed to find out that this one hadn't fully decomposed. So they left that one alone. Oh, you don't want to touch a a nearly decomposed corpse. Jesus. I mean, no. Fair I, enough, I say. I mean, what were they expecting? You're in a cemetery. Oh, no, we won't touch that one. Anyway, so then they go back for a third time. Yeah. And this time they decide to make it to make it make a make a night of it. And they have a party in the crypt and they bring booze and candles and music and they take photos of themselves posing with the dead. Oh my god. Are they were they drinking out of skulls and Conan the Barbarian style? Like? I believe they took some photos where they were doing with the skull doing the classic poor Yorick kind of thing. Oh well, I mean, if you have the opportunity. You mean, if, you, <laughs> if you've got a skull, you've got to do it, right? I mean, they've gotten pretty deep into their desecration that's yes. not the worst thing they could do and so the mistake that they made was that oh, they <laughs> what single mistake did these people make oh yeah because everything they'd done up to this point was sound decision making totally reasonable Jeez. the one mistake the only mistake they made was that they went and they got the pictures developed and then accidentally dropped the photos in the shopping mall <laughs> Excellent. What? I just imagine finding those, just thinking, well, I have to do something with these, don't I? <laughs> well, it was a local security card that happened on the photos and immediately notified the police. That's even and worse. then the... it's not even just an interested bystander who thinks <laughs> these are a bit kooky. Nope, it was a security card. And so 
yes, the police were notified, and the the gig was the gig was up at that stage. Well and truly. Mm. And in court, Gibson, who was the ringleader of the group, he was sentenced to eighteen months in prison. Mm-hmm. And the curious thing in this case was that Gibson, I suppose, had a pre-existing diagnosis of Asperger's syndrome, and okay. during the appeal process, his defence argued that that hadn't been taken into account. And he, they basically, he, he got, the sentence was repealed, I suppose. Oh, okay. So convicted, but no uh, custodial sentence. Well, yeah, I'm not quite sure how it works. So I guess he was found guilty and then during the appeal process. Um, so I imagine he would have served some time in prison. Ah, okay. M- maybe sort of, yeah, during that process and then mm. released. Right. So mm. the precedent was a reduced sentence for mental health considerations i mean i guess they're analogous in that they're both wacky stories it's like (laughs) utterly unbelievable if it weren't recorded in a court and evidence presented and you actually find the photos it's (laughs) amazing okay Mm. so i i think the analogous part is that in the gibson case the appeal judge he likened gibson to being uh, who him who himself had an admitted fascination with skulls to being like a a, a chocoholic let loose in a Cadbury factory. Is that what the judge said? That is what the judge said. At least oh, that is the reporting that I have. I think that is probably not an appropriate way of just of describing that. Probably not. No, Mister. I assume Mister Judge. Mm. And I think, but I think based on that, Edwin was likened in a similar way with having the feather fascination. Okay, mm. I mean, I, I mean, obviously that's the the analogous um, mental health consideration as as part of sentencing. And so when so when it came to Edwin's case, the judge and in his ruling he he makes full recognition of the severity of the crime, and the loss to scientific heritage, and even concluded himself that Edwin had been financially motivated, but. Then when he says, well, then when he looks at what happened with the Gibson ruling, he believed that if he had made a, at least this was his reasoning, he believed that if he made a sentencing of prison time, that it would be overturned in an appeal. Right. Due to the precedent. Due to the precedent. And so that being the case, he was in, he ordered instead that Edwin be given a court appointed psychological help and that Mm -hmm. he sentenced him to 12 months suspended prison time is what ended up happening. Okay, that's. I'm sure that would have come as a, a bit of a blow to the train museum. Yes, I suppose the damage had been done in one sense mm, that yeah. no matter what the ruling was, they couldn't recover what had been lost. But I guess they felt that justice was never really done in that sense. Yeah, it's it's a difficult it's a difficult subject in terms of sentencing and, and mental health it, in the criminal justice system. I know that generally it's. From my understanding, the criminal justice system is generally that people with mental health disorders are overrepresented um, and receive harsher mm. sentences. But um, in this case, yeah, I, I guess it. I mean, certainly, as I say, we're not psychologists. No, nope. we, we have no idea how this should or shouldn't be factored in. No, nope. um, but from the description of, of what you've, you've given um, in terms of what the psychologist said, it sounds like it, it, it kind of explains some of the the to us, to you and I, somewhat bizarre behaviour of that's intensely focused and somehow just not considering the ramifications of the, the, the behaviour. Mm. 
But um, interesting. So that's how the case ended. That well, not quite, not quite. So he he was fined. He was as well. Okay. He was fined, and so they did an evaluation of the skins that he had stolen, and they came up with an estimate that they had been worth about a quarter of a million pounds. Wow, that's that's like a hundred golden flutes. <laughs> <laughs> Indeed, they they estimated it was. Uh, with a hundred golden flutes been taken. <laughs> it's the it's the standard unit. <laughs> golden flutes. Yeah. <laughs> Your Honor, we put a value of the stolen property at a hundred golden flutes. A hundred golden flutes, you say? Yes. Mm. Well, we, we can't reduce it to half golden flutes. Only whole golden flutes as measures. <laughs> Very well. Uh, the curious thing today is that that is now generally seen as having been an underestimation as well, a significant underestimation. Is that even at the time, not just with now it's rarer and they're slightly older? Oh, yes. At, at even the at the time, well. they think it was um, that that estimation probably should have been a bit higher. Later calculated, this might be in US dollars as well, that maybe $400,000 might have been a bit closer to the mark. Wow. Okay. Yeah. It's, it's, not, it's not quite a book, but... It's a lot. It's a, it's yeah, a lot it's, of money. I still... Pretty pretty high-value items. Indeed. At any rate, the court ordered that Edwin would only have to pay half the value, so £125,000. Was that... why? Sorry, why was it reduced as well? I've got no idea. Is is it... Would that be an odd ruling? I, I don't know how um, sentencing works in the UK in terms of fine amounts. I, I just... I imagine that being a flautist... And he's what at this at this stage? He's twenty twenty one. Yeah, I think the argument might have been made that, considering his financial situation and his age, that it was unreasonable to impose a fine of that size on him and expect right. him to pay it. Perhaps. Well, I mean, especially since I I don't know what he sold the fly um, the the feathers for, but I imagine given given that they were stolen property, he probably didn't sell them for as much as they could have been worth legitimately. So he presumably didn't make a vast sum of money from this. I'm Honestly, I'm really not sure. And I'm, I'm also not sure how much of even the uh, 125000 that he ended up paying. At the time, uh, he had £13,000 that was liquid and could be paid and it was not quite a golden flute not quite a golden flute and um at the, flute. <laughs> and at the time you know it was kind of ruled that you know should he come into money in the future there'd be an obligation that he would have to pay further towards the fine but whether that happened or not i i don't know i i really don't know how it, how it ended up checking out in the end interesting i mm. i didn't know that that's how that worked okay yeah it's curious but anyway, so we'll come back to the birds here again. So of Please. the of the three hundred that were taken, hundred and two were returned fully intact with their tags and their data still still together. Yeah. And then another seventy two were recovered that had their labels that had been removed. And then there were nineteen that were returned to the museum by people who had bought the birds from Edwin. Oh, that's that's good of them. Yeah, well, either because their name had come up during the proceedings as customers or that they had done it out of their goodness of their heart. It was a bit of a mix of both. Southern, slightly less good of them. Yes. So, you know, I'll, I'll save you the math. Um, and so that left 106 birds that were still unaccounted for. 
And the questions of what happened to those birds is still today a bit of a mystery. And I guess that's the point where I probably want to stop the story because I think up until now, the story that we've covered has is, is, is I guess, a matter of public record. But the story was popularised by one person in particular, a, a gentleman by the name of Kirk Wallace Johnson, who wrote a book on the subject that's called The Feather Thief. Oh, great title. It's, it's got a nice ring to it, doesn't it? Mm. And uh, in the book, he kind of becomes obsessed with these missing birds and he sets out on his own mission to, you know, a several-year-long sleuth to talk to all the main players in the fly world and he even convinced Edwin to kind of sit down and talk to him in an interview. Oh, and wow. yeah, so I you know, I won't give away the ending because I think that's Kirk's story to tell and I think if people are interested they can freely pick up the book The Feather Thief: Beauty Obsession and the Natural History Heist of the Century by Kirk Wallace Johnson. So it's not even just speculation, he's he's actually looked into it. Yeah, he's he's looked into it and he found out as much as he could. Anyway, well, what a story. What a story. Thank you for uh, for podcasting with me, David. Well, thanks thanks for having me on and talking me through just a ridiculous series of extremely well contextualized events. Oh. <laughs> I There's a whole episode of context. Oh, yes. It's, I think uh, yeah, it's 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 fascinating. I think um as as someone who's interested in in legal processes as well, I'm certainly going to be doing my best to track down the case and to read the judgment. <laughs> I'll let you know if I find it. Oh, I'd be very excited to uh, to hear the word from the judge's mouth. Um, I don't know how we're going to end this. <laughs> so I will level with you. We never came up with a neat way to sign off the podcast. But after having gone through and told the whole wild story of Edwin Rist from Marie Antoinette in 1775 through to Kirk Wallace Johnson publishing his account in 2019, there were a few thoughts that I wanted to close with. Because, I guess for me, after you wade through the incredible facts of the story, there is something in this about the human attitude towards the natural world and what we as individuals think we're entitled to, and I think it's easy to vilify Edwin in the story. But so much more than what he did, it was the culture that permeated the fly-tying community that enabled his crime. You have these semi-obsessed individuals willing to pay ridiculous sums of money for products that under normal circumstances are illegal to possess. And they want these feathers so they can create semen flies in the traditional way it was done a hundred years ago. Never mind the fact that the fish don't care, Never mind the fact that they don't even use them to fish. Never mind the fact that it's possible to make perfectly fine-looking replicas with normal feathers that are dyed to look like the genuine piece. For them, it's almost a fetish, getting your hands on the real thing, to make the real fly like the masters of old. Don't worry about the fact that many of these birds are dangling on the edge of extinction. They seem to think they have a God-given right to possess these feathers. And although a lot of them wagged their fingers at Edwin for the crime he committed, these people know only too well that these feathers are contraband. They know the birds are endangered, and they know there are very few legitimate legal ways to get them. And yet, they all scramble for these feathers, creating an inflated demand and making a museum heist all the more attractive. And I think this also goes a bit to how Humanity treats the natural world as a whole. 
we consume. We consume the natural world for our own comfort and enjoyment and believe we are entitled to the things that make our lives comfortable and enjoyable. This is going to a much bigger ecological and global question about how our species is even going to survive on the planet. And I don't have answers. I don't think anyone really does. But I do think it is interesting that in Edwin Rist and in the fly-tying community, we see a microcosm play out of a much larger story that is very telling of human nature. Do I think Edwin Rist was a villain? In a small sense, yes. But in a larger sense, I don't think what he did is any different to what any of us do in our day-to-day -day lives. The only difference is the destruction and greed and the place where the cost is borne for our actions is far removed from ourselves and we don't see it. For Edwin, it was right there in front of him, and arguably that is a worse thing. I don't think anyone out there wants to devour the planet, but we should at least be aware of the systems we enjoy that enable that behaviour from a distance. I guess maybe... Edward made a more conscious choice that we don't. We just allow ourselves to be pulled along with the tide. So maybe that is a bit of a downer to end things on, but what a story. I really hope you enjoyed it. And another big thank you to David for being good enough to indulge me in its telling, and maybe at some point he'll come back and join us again for another story. But next time, we're getting back to that classic Bird of the Week winning formula. Me sitting alone in a blanket fort, monologuing, as I bring you everything there is to know about penguins. These tuxedo-wearing waddlers are some of the most amazing birds that ever took to the air. Oh, wait, no, they're flightless. Just gotta get that straight before the next episode. I hope you'll join me then. In the meantime, I'm heading off to record this week's Patreon-only episode on how the Bohemian Waxwing got its name. Who are these tiny birds? Are they gypsies made out of wax? Well, for the low price of just $2 a month, you can find out all about it when you sign up on Patreon. That's Patreon forward slash Bird of the Week, or one word, link in the description. I mean, come on, you know you want to. And if you want more bird action in your inbox, you can always sign on for our free weekly email service by dropping a line to weekly.bird at outlook.com to get added to the Bird of the Week mailing list because, hey, we could all use more birds in our inbox. So thank you for listening once again, and I'll be back soon with some penguins. Until then, this has been Bird of the Week. I mean, yeah, is that is that where we end? What else do we do? Do we do like a like some sort of B-roll? It's like, oh yes, I like birds. Do you like birds? What a show! Listen to the podcast for a bird. That's amazing B-roll. It's A-grade material right there. That, that's that's not B-roll. That's oh, that's, that's the A-roll. That's the lead. It's <laughs> that's front running before intro. <laughs> you laugh. I might use that as the intro. Well, you know what they say.